started in 2016-2017, we were all researchers working on a very specific aspect of missions. So we very quickly came to the idea that, you know, Catholics are extremely diverse, Muslim as well. And we had no taboo in the sense that we also ask ourselves uh, missions in Judaism. Is this possible? How? When? how to qualify, so we started with that. Working on mission in the Middle East raised the question of who are the public. So how should we qualify the fact of addressing this public? Is it preaching? Is it proselytism? And to raise this comparison with Islam and Judaism. The, the preaching of the doxa of Sunni Islam to groups deemed heretical at the end of the Ottoman Empire uh, as much in common with Jewish uh, internal missions, aiming to preach uh, a reformed version of Judaism. Uh, this preaching um, was not always formal, public, and it was not only related to sermon giving. Um, informal preaching was and is still done uh, in schools, um, hospitals, and even associations. Preaching implied uh, being part of creating a community. Since the 19th century, missionaries and preachers have contributed to shaping the societies of the Middle East and North Africa. Before and after the end of Ottoman rule, this vast region was much more than a stage monopolized by Western, that is Catholic or Protestant, congregations. Other forces too, including Jewish and Muslim groups, more or less related to the nation-states emerging in the region, developed their own strategies to make and unmake communities based on religion. A new edited volume entitled Missions and Preaching, Connected and Decompartmentalized Perspectives from the Middle East and North Africa, 19th to 21st century, published by Brill, discusses this topic through an interdisciplinary approach gathering contributions by historians, anthropologists, and sociologists. The book covers case studies from Armenia to Tunisia, and many of these studies insist on the mobility of models and actors through which the galaxy of missions developed through time. In this episode, we will be listening to Norik Neve, Karen Sanchez-Samerer, and Anna Laura Turriano, the three editors of this volume. They will present their own research topics that range from the civilizing mission within Islam carried out by the late Ottoman state in Jordan to Christian missions in 20th century Palestine to schools run by Italian religious congregations in Egypt. But beyond these aspects, Norik, Karen and Anna Laura will tell us more about their edited volume, so how this collective work addressed issues like confessional pluralism, the temporality and the periodization of missions, as well as their intersections with colonialism and gender.
Hello and welcome to a joint episode of the Southeast Passage and Ottoman History Podcast. I am Andreas Guidi and today we will talk about missions and preaching in the modern Middle East and North Africa. I have the pleasure to host Norik Neveu, Karen Sanchez Summerer and Anna Laura Turiano and we will start with Norik who is a historian working at the CNRS, the French National Center for Scientific Research. She is based at the IREMAMA, the Institute of Research and Study on the Arab and Muslim World at Aix-Marseille University. Norik's work has investigated issues related to gender and territoriality linked with the domain of religion, but especially the notion of religious authority. She shared with us an example from her study of Jordan at the turn of the 20th century, through which we can recognize a particular Muslim and Ottoman interpretation of missions. The example I will uh, use today leads us to the region of Kerak and Ma'an, which are in southern Ottoman Transjordan or southern Bilad Sham, at the end of the 19th century. One of the elements I studied was the um, Ottoman official policy of sending uh, ulamas and religious authorities to reshape the religious education in Jordan. So those ulama were really sharing the same problematic with the Christian missionaries, taking care of not having shared practices towards holy sites and uh, reshaping the religious boundaries between Christian and Muslims. And even the general narrative used by those authorities and then the Ottoman uh, representative uh, was very much echoing the narrative of the Christian mission, describing how Bedouins and Arabs in this region would be undereducated and in a state of backwardness, more or less. This, of course, has been studied, for instance, by Eugen Rogan, Salim Deringil, Usama Magdisi. So in this region, uh, the, the Ottoman representative sent different ulamas to preach to the Bedouin people. So they were the target population to be re-educated to, to religion and they also sent um, many copies of the Quran. For instance, on June 27, 1894, local administration asked for sending copies of the Quran and books with explanation of the text, of the Quranic text, for one of the, of the nomadic tribes, which also echoes other missionary strategies, like, for instance, sending Bibles with translation in local languages. So most of those ulamas or alim, they were coming not from the region, but from Palestine, uh, Syria. The redeployment of those uh, preachers and of those ulamas went within a broader frame of re-establishment of the Ottoman authority in the southern province of Bilad Sham um, for different reasons, because of the loss of European provinces, because of the Tenzimat at this time, so those reforms, and the development of the educational system, the will of modernizing and bringing civilization to those Provinces. So the religious aspect was just part of this project. 
The late Ottoman state adopted strategies addressing its Muslim and Bedouin populations that bear similarities to the way Christian institutions aimed at normalizing certain practices among their co-religionists in the region. Now, this is linked to one of the most interesting contributions of the book, Missions and Preaching, because we usually associate these terms with um, Christian missionaries, whereas many chapters show examples of circulation, emulation, and even competition across confessional boundaries. The book is really an attempt to revisit the compartmentalization of approaching religion. So our perspective was that the Middle East would be a kind of laboratory for the reshaping of modes of preaching during the 20th century for different reasons. One of them is the new interest for this part of the world because it's holy land for Christians, it's holy land and place for the Thionist project for, for Jewish population, and it's also where political Islam will blossom in the region. I mean, many religious dynamics occur in this region at the same time. For instance, uh, the example developed by uh, Emmanuel Trevisan is really interesting because from the experience of, the, of a Christian uh, missionary, you also have like the renewal of a Jewish movement from Ethiopia to Israel that developed. So it gives an idea of the kind of mobility of the people embodying this, uh, this mission. And you have more or less the same idea in the article of Maya Kahari also. More in a competitive way between Christianity and, and, uh, and Judaism. And maybe just to give a third example, I think the article of Nechati Al-Khan also shows well, one, that the Ottoman policy to send preachers in the different territories of the empire somehow copies the Christian missions. It's at minimum uh, a response, and it tackles the same specialization, education, sometimes medicine. I mean, you also have some domains of the missions that are overlapping. This plural concept of Holy Land accentuates even more the centrality of Palestine for the study of missions and preaching. This territory is the focus of Karen sanchez Summerer's research. Karen is professor and chair at the Department of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Groningen. 
Karen has been working on a social and cultural history of Christian institutions, and she will tell us more about how they underwent important changes throughout the 20th century while the political world surrounding them was changing even more dramatically. This is part of a research on German culture and language in Palestine that Karen will publish in a new monograph next year. German was a forbidden language in Jerusalem after the First World War, though these missionaries were in fact present since the last quarter of the 19th century. So looking back uh, into how we approached the topic, I decided to go uh, in the what is today a very dynamic school from a political point of view, but also training a lot of uh, very clever girls. The Schmidt Schule, it's next to the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Uh, this is also a highly political place where uh, every time there are manifestations, uh, there are problems occurring. So you have, at the beginning of the century, a flourishing institution that is very much looking into all types of population coming to the Holy Land. And of course, you have a lot of German, Austrian during the 20s and the 30s coming. Many of them are uh, of Jewish confession, of course. But you also have a lot of Muslim families asking for uh, girls' education in Jerusalem. And you have these uh, German sisters who will slowly but surely train several generations of Palestinian Arab feminists. So how after the beginning of the British mandate, the German language is forbidden for years. And how do you transmit German, what is called in the archives, values and discipline for the best of the Holy Land? This is actually what mission and preaching is for these sisters. These sisters are Catholic. So you also have different level of complementarity. When we speak about mission and preaching, we always have to look into the diversity of different confessions. Within this very general envelope of Christian missions, you have a real analysis of what the other ones are doing. So my anecdote is I entered in a kind of cellar where I found a lot of documents full of humidity. And when I unpacked these uh, after several months and living there and you know how it worked, it, it was almost a religious initiation, I would say. Then when I entered the holy of the holy of the archives, what I found was amazing because you find all the lists of the family names, the type of curriculum they were following. But you also find reports on who is doing what in this holy city and why we should go further in terms of planification. So you also have a part of document who are telling, obviously, we cannot transmit the German language but we have to convert them to German values and discipline. The only one that will save this Arab slash Jewish question. You can trace them at the beginning of the 20s, hesitating, redefining what a mission should be. And you see a, a 
big evolution at the th um, beginning of the 30s when the German language is not forbidden anymore, but you have such an influx of uh, German and Jewish uh, Austrians coming to the country that you see they are trying to make links with this type of uh, immigrants. And you also see them asking for fundings in new way and at the same time trapped, of course, with uh, Nazism. So you come from one very difficult situation of a language being forbidden to a difficult <laughs> um, period where the political system is not helping you in this Holy Land. So this is the example I wanted to, to give because uh, the diversity of actors also means that some of them have a pre-conceptual uh, idea of what mission should be and will never reach the point of realizing that fully and on the ground acting as such. But you also have people who are planning long time ahead and have tools of measuring if the action are efficient according to either uh, governmental uh, criteria, but also religious one. And this is the nodal point where you see them struggling between a local, regional, but also transnational dynamic in how to preach and how to be efficient when you have sometimes, I would say on the surface, uh, antagonist goals. The adaptation to a changing environment links the history of missions to the history of politics. This, in turn, brings us to the issue of temporality. In other words, how can we measure and assess changes within specific institutions or within even broader shared patterns of missions? As the title of the book suggests, an overarching look at the modern and contemporary ages in the Middle East and North Africa can be fruitful. Although this is surely a challenging task when it comes to narrating the whole story. Uh, this idea of longue durée was actually the only possibility we had to try to have a comprehensive, inclusive and uh, cross-archival analysis. So also to unpack very specific period in terms of nationalism, instrumentalization of religion, change of religious practices. So there are several schools, you know, to interpret the missionary action. But what is common to everyone is that you see at the end of the 19th century a very religious approach to what a mission is. You have a lot of nuances coming in. First World War Second World War, and a real uh, relationship built with local population to the point that some of the anthropologists today speak about a missionarization of NGOs and NGOization of missions uh, from the 40s onwards and mainly after the Second World War. On one side, you have religious missions that use the best practices of association that are, like NGOs, secular. And you also have in the Middle East this missionarization of NGOs, so 
secular organizations who progressively are having a more religious framework still very valid uh, until today. Just like the Schmidt Schule in Jerusalem, many missionary schools moved in between the political influence of their sending countries, their own agenda, but also the type of students they addressed locally. This topic has also been researched by Anna Laura Turiano, who is a postdoctoral researcher affiliated to the already mentioned Institute Iremama at Aix-Marseille University, Anna Laura is preparing a book on the history of Italian missionary schools in Egypt, in which she investigates topics like philanthropy, education and migration. So my book tells the story of an Italian Catholic uh, mission, the Salesian Mission, and its network of um, schools, um, vocational schools, uh, in Egypt between um, the 19th and the 20th century. Uh, Christian missionaries in the Middle East targeted mainly Eastern uh, Christian uh, communities. The Salesians who settled in Alexandria in 1897 uh, had a slightly different objective. Uh, they targeted the European migrants and workers, um, whom they considered in need of uh, spiritual uh, assistance. Uh, so I argue that this activity um, was the main specificity of the Salesian mission, at least uh, in the beginning. So were the migrants uh, the Salesians were caring for? They were mainly workers, craftsmen, mechanics, for instance, uh, for whom uh, colonial Egypt was an attractive land, uh, as it offered job opportunities uh, in multiple uh, sectors. Uh, for this immigrant European and Italian proletariat, uh, the Salesians opened a school, different schools of arts and crafts, uh, trade schools, um, and promoted also um, different initiatives like uh, the, the creation of employment uh, offices. Uh, they pushed two main objectives. Uh, on the one hand, uh, strengthen the faith of uh, the migrants, and on the other hand, uh, avoid the risk of assimilation as most uh, Italian immigrants lived in poor neighborhoods and mixed with uh, a much larger Muslim population. Um, in addition to this pastoral care for migrants, uh, what is uh, also interesting in this uh, case study uh, is that um, missionaries were quickly involved um, in the Italian national and colonial project in the Mediterranean. Uh, indeed, uh, as the Italian community in Egypt was the largest in the Mediterranean, 
the Italian government considered it as a potential bridgehead for a colonial expansion in Africa uh, and the Levant. Um, so in this context, missionary schools were seen uh, on the one hand as a means of strengthening national and linguistic ties uh, within the Italian diasporas, and on the other hand, as a vehicle for training uh, potential clients for Italy's economic interest uh, in the Mediterranean. So for all these reasons, Italian rep representatives in Egypt actively supported the missionaries and financially uh, backed um, their schools. So indeed, my book shows how the Salesian mission survived the departure of Italian communities from Egypt in the 1950s, uh, 1960s. Um, already in the interwar period, uh, Salesian vocational schools uh, started uh, attracting in, in num increasing numbers of uh, Egyptian students who uh, were seeking practical and manual training um, at a time of uh, economic crisis. During the Nasserist era, Salesian school provided vocational training in various trades like mechanics and ele electromechanics, which were considered useful for uh, Egypt's industrial development uh, projects. Uh, in 1970, uh, Italy and Egypt signed several technical cooperation agreements, including aid for uh, vocational training. Um, and the Salesian schools were part of these uh, cooperation schemes. So my book shows how uh, in a decolonized sea, uh, missions and missionaries continued the, their activities um, under a new label uh, that is uh, technical cooperation. And I argue more specifically that uh, the rhetoric of development aid served uh, to justify uh, new forms of uh, Christian presence, uh, uh, Christian witness. Missions and preaching only marginally achieved conversions through proselytism. They came to be more concerned by legitimizing their action and their authority in imperial settings where multiple hierarchies existed. The edited volume addresses these hierarchies that were not only based on citizenship or uh, race or, of course, religion. Class and gender were also a part of the equation impacted by missions in the last two centuries. There is no doubt that missionaries were active players in the imperial game. Uh, they largely participated in the development of a colonial system of knowledge and power relations that characterized colonization were not limited uh, to uh, class, religious or even racial uh, hierarchies, uh, but they also entailed the gender inequalities. And that's why uh, I believe that adopting a gender perspective in the study of mission may shed a new light uh, on the history of colonialism. And in this sense, one interesting point uh, concerns uh, women missionaries and the gender of missions in the process of empire building. Uh, indeed, colonial authorities considered women missionaries as important, if not uh, privileged players in the imperial uh, game, uh, since their action was uh, seen as benevolent, uh, silent and uh, uncontroversial. Missionaries were not only proselytizing, uh, as we already mentioned, uh, they also brought to the colonies their vision of the family, models of uh, femininity and masculinity. And they sought to reproduce these models in societies that functioned uh, often according uh, to different uh, dynamics. So, for instance, missionaries who settled in the Middle East insisted in their writings on the subjugation of women, their presumed lack of civilization and education, 
uh, despite this um, rhetoric, missionary action often ended up reinforcing or introducing new forms uh, or, or even introducing new forms of gender inequalities. Uh, like uh, relegating women to domestic and family tasks or um, reinforcing their subjection to uh, their husbands. Uh, in addition to women and femininity, questions about masculinity are also um, interesting. Um, one can wonder, for instance, how colonial manliness was transposed in colonial settings by a missionary institution. Uh, or also how gender identities were negotiated in times of growing nationalism. Mm. My work on Italian missionaries, uh, for instance, showed how um, missionaries' pedagogy was often at odds with imperial interest. And I also showed to what extent missionaries' uh, gender ideals were challenged and uh, to some extent uh, even transformed by contact with uh, students, uh, families, uh, and um, other local uh, actors. Uh, so just to conclude, I believe that themes of gender and religion constitute a fertile ground for scholars of colonialism uh, by reflecting on negotiation, uh, on also on reappropriation of gender norms and role models in missionary spaces, Uh, one can get a more complex picture of the co-production of colonial uh, encounters. In this episode, you are listening to a conversation among historians. But the interdisciplinary scope of the book points to a bridge toward the current state of missions and preaching in the Middle East and North Africa. So I asked our guests and editors of the volume to share some remarks on how the history of missionary actions echoes until today. Today, I think the actions of uh, missions in the Middle East are unavoidable, we said, on several levels, humanitarianism, religious. So something we spoke less about during this podcast is the notion and the evolution of the notion of mission within Judaism. So if we look into the state of Israel today and new platform, you know, like a Torah box, uh, our colleague um, Sebastian Tank Torper mentioned in this article, this new platform of missions. Uh, we did not mention the, the very vivid uh, movement that other colleagues are working on, missions from the global south to the global south, because uh, we were not only looking into a north-south approach, of course not. And we see that at different level. Uh, 
I myself as an historian, but uh, you have people tackling this phenomenon uh, within different area today as uh, anthropologists. Um, I want to conclude also with this um, idea of probably the collective memory of mission and preaching. Today, in some region of the Middle East, you have an evangelical, almost military, you know, uh, uh, offensive and initiatives. Uh, partial voices tend to represent a pseudo-majority of missionaries, which is not the case. So we wanted to do justice to the various missions and their I would say legacy today in the in the Middle East. Yeah, we are having now a discussion between historians, but I think having those political scientists, ethnologists, uh, anthropologists also mentioning using this approach is, is for us really interesting. The book um, tackles the notion of missionary work, which I think is also interesting to analyze uh, Islamic, Jewish and Christian action on the ground and what it means in terms of gender dynamics but also domination dynamics uh, how the migrants can also become preachers that's what for instance uh, Armand Opie shows uh, in the case of the migrant churches in, in Istanbul. For the most contemporary part of the book our perspective was to tackle different aspects one of them is, of course, uh, what has been called the Arab Spring or the revolution movement toward the North Africa and, and the Middle East, and also the interaction in between missions and state. Um, Esther Sigillo shows how, with the revolution in Tunisia, preaching and the mission fit within the expectation of the new state. And then there is the contribution of Gabriel Angers, uh, on the Gulen movement and this transnational competition in between the local part of the staff and the foreign staff, foreigners being Turkish for most of them. So another aspect that the volume highlights uh, is the shifting uh, geographies of missions. Many contributions have mentioned, uh, for instance, the growing importance of missions from south to south and from south to north. And this brings me to another aspect uh, relevant, uh, in my opinion, to exploring the past and present missions, uh, which is the pastoral care for migrants. Um, so how missionary preaching took place and still uh, um, happens among migrants, people on the move, uh, refugees, uh, is definitely an important question to be uh, addressed. Ultimately, uh, the question of the materiality of preaching um, is, in my view, at the heart of past and present missions. Uh, Sebastian Torp's contribution, but also Emir Maheddin and Kadia Boissevin showed um, how material or uh, dematerialized media have an impact on missionary um, preaching uh, and the way uh, they participate in shaping new forms of preaching. Uh, so, as the volume suggests, the sensorial and sensitive uh, aspect of preaching is um, a relevant and promising avenue uh, of research and one that may help connect the study of missions in the MENA region. Our guests, Norik Neveu, Karen Sanchez-Samerer and Anna Laura Torriano, took us on a journey across space and time. 
Our episode focused on only a few aspects related to their edited volume, missions and preaching, connected and decompartmentalized perspectives from the Middle East and North Africa, published by Brill. If you want to delve into the topic, let me remind you that the book is available as open access and that you will find the link to it on our websites. The editors also agreed to share some visual material about the many worlds of missions and preaching initiatives in the MENA region. So stay tuned for more upcoming episodes of the Southeast Passage and the Ottoman History Podcast and visit our websites and social media platforms where you can also interact with our community of followers. This was all for today. Until next time, take care.